0: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, For those who don't know, my name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright. And it is my privilege this morning to share with you today from John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. We'll be spending... The bulk of our time together there this morning, but we'll be exploring it through the lens of the third statement from our mission statement becoming trusted neighbors. Now, I don't know for sure, but I could bet that that particular phrase out of the three of them might have stuck out compared to the other two. You know, things like rooted in Jesus, that's a no brainer, growing as a community. That makes sense. Becoming trusted neighbors. It, I mean, when you examine it, I think it makes total sense, but it does stick out a little bit more than the others. But I promise you that each of these three words... We're chosen with great intentionality. And I'm looking forward to putting a little flesh on these bones for us. And briefly, I want to just consider the meaning of those before we jump into our passage. So, becoming trusted neighbors. Becoming implies that this is a process where we've not fully arrived. That we are in an ongoing process of building trust amongst court Ride's neighbors, your neighbors, and the other social spheres that you find yourself in. It also implies that perhaps, possibly, we haven't always been good neighbors, that we haven't always fulfilled the second part of the great commandment to love God with our hearts and soul and love our neighbor as ourselves. So there's a humility in saying becoming because by God's grace, we want to love our neighbors well. We want to do better. We're becoming trusted neighbors. And then trusted. Trusted is about our neighbors seeing our faithful witness, seeing the fruit of our faith, seeing the sincerity of our rootedness in Jesus, seeing our community, um, seeing our good deeds. And over time, becoming uh, sometimes quickly, sometimes it takes a while. Friendships are formed, bridges are built, and trust is built. When we have trust, it allows, our friendship and conversation with, uh, it allows us to have friendship and conversation with our neighbors. When we have broken trust, it impedes our ability to do much of anything at all. A question that I often ask myself and that I think is good for maybe us as a church to ask is if my family packed up and moved, what would the reaction of my neighbors be? Would they be totally indifferent? Would they be throwing a party once they see the sold sign go up? Or would they be throwing a party and inviting me because they're going to miss me? Only one of those means that we are known and trusted. Similarly for court rights, it's, it's worth considering and asking the question, if suddenly today we ceased operation, we, didn't, we were no longer a church community, or say we moved across town, Would people be glad? Would they be glad? Oh, we're glad that church is no longer there. Would people even notice? Or even if they disagreed with who we are and what we believed, would people notice a gap in our neighborhood? Those are the kinds of questions that are good to ask. And it's a good litmus test for wondering, okay, am I a trusted neighbor? And finally, that word neighbor. This one's a little simpler. We have Courtright's literal neighbors. We live in the University Village neighborhood of Guelph, and everyone in this region, we consider our neighbors, but you also have your neighbors, whether you are in a house or an apartment or a condo or whatever that looks like, we all have neighbors in our proximity. And then there's also the people in our social spheres, in our spheres of influence, in the places that we work, in the schools we go to, et cetera. We may come from totally different cultures, backgrounds, religious affiliations, political ideologies, but they remain our neighbors. And Jesus had quite a lot to say about neighbors, but perhaps more importantly, Jesus truly lived out, love your neighbor as yourself, which brings us to our passage this morning. So the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus was stirring right before this passage he was stirring up a bit of trouble in judea as he often did so he and his, his disciples they left to go to galilee and on the way to galilee for most jews they would have to travel through the region of samaria which was very much less than desirable jews and samaritans were centuries old enemies to the point where there were actually Jewish laws that were codified that made all Samaritans, according to Jews, ritually unclean. So it's like we can't go near them, we can't touch them, we can't be in proximity to them. So they were avoided at all costs so as not to become ritually unclean themselves. The only thing to know that's kind of important for our story this morning is why about why Samaritans were so hated among Jews is because they were seen effectively as traitors. They had built their own temple of worship separate from Jerusalem, they had intermingled and intermarried with the Assyrian people, so they were seen as both racially and religiously impure. And, and I recognize by our modern sensibilities, that sounds like bonkers offensive, but it's, there's a lot of cultural challenges when we look at the, what was going on back then. In the first century, there was this complex and nuanced debate about the the preservation of a religious and ethnic group, the Jewish people, that had experienced so much hardship and persecution over the centuries. So before we read the passage, let's pray. God, source of all light, by your word, you give us light to the soul. This morning, would you pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened by your word. Amen. So John 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse, starting at verse 1, and we're omitting a few verses. So we're going 1 to 30, and then 39 to 42. Um, we've omitted a few verses where Jesus is sort of conversing with his disciples, and I'd encourage you to read that on your own time and see if you can kind of examine where, where and how that sort of fits in with the story here. So, John chapter four, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard all that, was, all that, all that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptized, but his disciples. Sorry, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. "'I have no husband,' she replied. "'Jesus said to her, "'You are right when you say that you have no husband. "'The fact is you have had five husbands, "'and the man you now have is not your husband. "'What you have said is quite true. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see that you are a prophet. "'Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, "'but you Jews claim the place "'where we must worship is Jerusalem.' Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. Now, he's saying that, in, in that's more of a term of endearment. It's not like, you know, the way we'd say woman today. <laughs> believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father near, uh, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshiper, worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, in Jesus, because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. So five years ago, I was in a pretty bad state. I was experiencing some pretty awful depression and burnout and I had a lot of friends that rallied around me in that season, but there's one interaction in particular with someone that is seared into my memory, and I can't quite figure out why, but it's stuck with me these years later. It was after church one Sunday, and it was kind of during coffee hour, and she looked at me, and she saw me, and she started just gently asking questions about how I was doing, and how my mental health was, and that sort of thing, and and then she asked one question in particular. She said, what do you do for fun? And I don't know why, I just started crying. And I'm, not a, I'm not a big crier, but like, I'm a softie, but I'm not a crier. It's, I don't know if that's a weird juxtaposition, but um, so I, I don't know what happened. I just started crying. And I think it was because at that point, I didn't have an answer. I didn't, I, nothing was fun at that point. I, I felt effectively hopeless, even while preaching on the hope that we have in Jesus. That conversation has stuck with me to this day because I immediately felt seen and known by her. She understood and validated where I was at. There's something deep and profound and even life-changing about being seen and known in our pain. To be truly known can be both liberating but also a little scary at times. And this encapsulates in many ways the experience of this unnamed Samaritan woman at the well and her interaction with Jesus. So on the way to Galilee, Jesus and his disciples arrive at a place designated as Jacob's well, a place of historical significance for both the Samaritans and Jews. And naturally, they are all thirsty and hungry after their travels, so the disciples head into town to buy food, and Jesus sits at the at the well, and it's around noon. It's hot. The sun is just bearing down on them. All the other women would have gotten their water hours ago. And Jesus has nothing to fetch water with and enter this Samaritan woman, curiously arriving after all the others, to fetch her water. Now, without inferring too much that is not in our passage, there could be and very likely is a good reason as to why this woman was showing up alone. And then in verse seven, Jesus says, will you give me a drink? The woman is, she's taken aback. Why is this Jewish man even acknowledging her? And there are layers here. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, he's a man, she's a woman. Culturally, he's not even supposed to be talking to her at all. I have to imagine that her response in verse 9 is a little sarcastic with a little bit of incredulity. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink, she says. The interaction is noteworthy for all of the reasons already mentioned, but it's also ner- n- noteworthy because we, the reader, are getting to see Jesus, the Savior of the world, have a need here. It's fascinating. It's, it's deeply incarnational. Like Think about ad- the Advent season. In the same way at Advent, we see the fullness of God in this tiny, needy little baby. We see need in adult Jesus as well. This is the reality of our fully God and yet fully human Jesus. We'll examine that piece a little bit more later, but there's something powerful powerful about coming to those from a very different life and perspective with our needs. It's humbling and healthy when we recognize our need for one another, our interdependence. So this barrier-breaking interaction leads into a full-on theological discussion in a way that only Jesus can do. Um, They talk about life and eternity and living water. Jesus offers her living water. Now, the concept is a bit confusing to her. She doesn't really know what to make of it all. She thinks he's referring to some sort of magic water that will mean uh, that she doesn't have to go back to this well and and dredge up the water. She won't have to do that anymore. She's quite excited about this prospect. But Jesus here is actually calling back to the prophet Jeremiah, specifically chapter 2, verse 13, which says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. There it is and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Living water is about the life that is truly life, the abundant life, the life that is found when we find ourselves in God and God alone. And in John 7, Jesus declares that for all who believe in him, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In other words, he's talking about the Holy Spirit's. Jesus is helping this woman understand what is on offer here, but their cultural and theological differences are causing a little bit of a misunderstanding because the Samaritan woman would not have known this particular passage. She would not have known Jeremiah, at least maybe she knew about him, but she wouldn't have known his book. The Samaritans didn't recognize any other uh, scriptures other than the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. So the reference was totally lost on her, didn't make sense to her, but this is highly relevant to both the Jews and Samaritans, but I think it's also relevant deeply for us today as well. You know, how often have we forsaken God, the source of life, living water, And how often have we dug our own cisterns? We've tried to find our own way, our own path to abundant life, only to discover that our cisterns are broken. They're leaking out. It doesn't lead to life at all. Again, true back then, true today. So they continue on in their discussion. Jesus asks after her husband. After all, Technically, he isn't even supposed to be speaking to this woman without her husband presence, if there is a man in the picture. And she sheepishly sort of skirts around her true story, saying, I don't have a husband. And Jesus reveals the truth, that she's been married five times, and at this point, she's probably given up on the idea of of marriage altogether and is in what we could consider kind of an ancient Near East version of a common law relationship. And this is frowned on in most Christian circles today, so you could imagine the stigma and scandal 2,000 years ago. But here's where we get it wrong, and it shows a little bit of our bias. We assume, at least I did growing up, and maybe you did as well. We assume that Jesus is shaming this woman for her sin, but the text doesn't support this. Much like we traditionally interpret, Jesus was revealing her life, the good, the bad, the sinful, but this woman is not any more or less sinful than you or I. But when we hear that she had five husbands, we get a sort of, Picture in our mind about what kind of person she is. We start to make assumptions. My understanding of this passage growing up was that Jesus reveals this clearly adulterous woman's sinful ways, and then she has this come to Jesus moment and is saved. That was the basic narrative I inferred as a kid. Anyone else in that similar boat? Oh, only me. Okay. (laughs) That's fine. Y'all are smarter than me. That's fine. Um, Here's the problem with putting our modern sensibilities onto an ancient text. Women were not allowed to initiate divorce. Under law, only men could instigate divorce. And even worse, men could divorce for even trivial reasons. Though for the first century marriages, something like infertility may have been a common reason and that maybe is in play here. We're not quite sure. In all likelihood, this woman is not some serial adulterer. We see in John 8, a few chapters later, that Jesus had no issue telling that woman, compassionate as he was, he still said to her, go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't do that here. He doesn't say that it is likely that she was either a victim of circumstance through being widowed and also a victim of the men who were supposed to be her protector divorcing her. Probably some combo of those two. Jesus was revealing that, yes, he knows her past, but what's more, he knows her plight. He sees her and he wishes to engage with her and show her compassion and show her love and show her life. He elevates this woman beyond what she could ever be capable of by herself as a victimized, marginalized woman in a patriarchal first-century world. Frankly, the woman's current living situation was understandable given her situation. After five marriages ending in some combination of death or divorce, wouldn't you be done with the whole thing? So this woman is amazed at his power. She's amazed at his insight and his compassion, and she sees him as a prophet. And it leads her to ask more questions. It it just piques her curiosity. And so they talk at length about their religious and cultural differences. It's like they're having a, a nice little chat and so they um, talk at length about these differences, and Jesus reminds her that because the Samaritans have settled with the Assyrians, that they lacked spiritual identity. They were a little bit of a mashup of traditional Jewish spirituality and also Assyrian gods and goddesses. So it was a little bit mixed up at times for them. They also spend time discussing the true and proper location to worship. And in classic Jesus fashion, he basically sidesteps the whole debate And he kind of gets to the heart of the matter, and he says, in due time, the location of where we worship, it's going to be totally irrelevant, but rather true worshipers, it doesn't matter whether they're on the mountain in Samaria or whether they're in the temple in Jerusalem, what matters is whether we worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus brilliantly sets aside their cultural differences and looks ahead to a time where this rivalry is not even going to be a thing. Despite their differences, the woman knows she's heard about this Messiah. And she says, I I know that the Messiah is to come and, and he will reveal all this to us. And in the most Jesus way possible, his most explicit proclamation of who he is comes in the form of a one-on-one conversation with a societal outcast. It's a beautiful moment. And at this realization that this man, this man is the Messiah, the one who would redeem the world, this Samaritan woman is overwhelmed and filled with great joy and no longer does she feel shame about her status as a marginalized woman. She's no longer an outsider or an outcast, but she has come face to face with the Messiah. And so in her excitement, she leaves her jar behind and she tells everyone in the village about what she has experienced. In her excitement, she becomes the first female preacher, I think. Amen? (laughs) Yeah. She urges Jesus to stay. And he obliges, he stays for two days with them. And it says in verse 39 that many believed in him, in Jesus, because of this woman's testimony. Her story made others curious. And after being with Jesus two days, many, many more came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the savior of the world. So there's so many good, awesome things happening in this passage and so much more that we unfortunately had to gloss over due to the time, but there is so much depth here. i encourage you to like read this with a, a study Bible or a commentary and just take it all in. It's, it's really remarkable all that's going on. But now that we've examined the passage, I want us to bring back that phrase from our mission statement, becoming trusted neighbors. And I want us to consider three things briefly, the need of Jesus the compassion of Jesus, and the truth of Jesus. And I want us to consider how these three things help us foster trust among our neighbors. And keep in mind that this is for us as as a church, it's also for us as individuals, representing your personal neighborhoods and the social spheres that you find yourself in. So firstly, the need of Jesus. One of the things that Allison and I, when we were kind of reading this passage together, we noted in, in our exposition was that the passage is, we noted in the passage that Jesus was physically thirsty. It wasn't some situation where he had some fake need that he used as a prop to start conversing with the woman. It was a genuine need that required this woman to respond. Aside from perhaps performing a miracle Of some kind, Jesus needed this woman's help and he didn't have the tools to fetch the water. How good are you at asking for help? I'm really bad at it. Is anyone else bad at asking for help when you need it? Yeah. I think that sometimes the church in general is not great at it. After all, aren't we supposed to have everything we need? Aren't we supposed to have all the answers? But I believe that admitting our need, admitting that we don't have it all figured out, we can actually facilitate trust among neighbors by doing this. It creates a mutuality and a sense that we are in this together. In the case of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, Jesus's need for water piqued her curiosity enough to engage in literally a life-changing conversation. Shortly before my surgery in January, I was chatting with a neighbor and we got to talking about my pending surgery date. And I admitted that I was a little bit overwhelmed because I was you know, worried about my dog getting enough exercise because it was going to be a lot because my wife was going to have to pick my daughter up from school and uh, drop her off and pick her up every day and do all of these sorts of things. And I was worried that you know, there was going to be some balls dropped. And immediately she says to me, oh, I can help you with both of those things. And she, true to form, did both of those things. It was was really, really amazing. Um, We've known each other for a few years, but over the past couple months since that conversation, since I declared a need that I had, wasn't expecting her to do anything about it. I'm grateful she did. But um, the depth of our connection has significantly increased all because I just said I needed something. This is something that we've lost a little bit in our day and age, at least in the West. Here, I find I can't speak for other cultures, but it kind of feels like the days of like going to your neighbor and asking for a cup of sugar. Like, I feel like those days are over a little bit, and it's sad. You know, I think the last time I had that happen was um, a neighbor across the street. We were, I think it was a couple winters ago. She was like, "Hey, do you have any bay leaves?" And I was like, "Yeah." I got like a whole bag full. Here, take, like, take the whole thing. I don't need it, you know? Um, and that was a really fun moment. I, I enjoyed that. But I feel like that has happened so infrequently. But there's something profound that happens when we admit our interdependence on one another, even those from radically different backgrounds. You know, Jesus here crossed all sorts of social barriers and taboos. And maybe that's something that we need to be more in the habit of doing. And yet I recognize, I know that it's uncomfortable, but we're not going to become trusted neighbors by simply being the nice folks who do everything for everyone. That's not how it's going to help. That's not how it's going to happen. A two-way relationship has to have mutuality to it. This is why we make a habit of asking our neighbors to help with our food security garden. Quite literally, we can't do it alone. It's one of the reasons we seek both inputs and grant money, uh, grant monies from organizations who specialize in certain things. Because it allows them to partner with us and be alongside us. It's one of the reasons that I've struck up a friendship with some folks who live in the neighborhood here um, So that we can come together and explore how we can make our green space, both Courtright's property and the park, and and kind of beautify the space and make it a a really wonderful place to be. We're in those conversations right now. It's one of the reasons that places like Royal City Mission and Hope House make a practice of removing barriers between us and them in in those who serve and those who are um, being served. And it's always the reason that those organizations are asking other churches and other organizations to be, uh, to be involved and, be, and to help out with meals, et cetera. And I just want to give a shout out. I believe this past week, Royal City, uh, Royal City Mission, we had a team from Courtright who were serving this past week and uh, just always grateful for that team and thankful for Sandra Grobler for um, overseeing that. And um, it's just amazing the way that we can help out and contribute together. And we do get to offer some things in, ba- you know, it's not just us doing, uh, it's not just us asking for help, but it's also us giving, like we did with Royal City Mission. We continue to hope that initiatives like our garden, where we are offering food for uh, those in need, and initiatives like our open gym, that's been uh, happening on Saturday afternoons, and Lord willing, more to come. That as we do these sorts of things. We get to both receive from those around us and we get to give back. There's there's a reciprocity there. What other things, and this is a question for us to consider, what other things can we do that will foster more mutual trust amongst our neighbors around us? What is the Holy Spirit saying to us right now? Let's get curious about what God is saying and doing. Next, the compassion of Jesus. Let's notice his compassion for this woman. The phrase that this woman uses is very beautiful, I find. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She wasn't saying that in the sense of Jesus exposing all her wrongdoings, but rather she's, I mean, could you imagine going to like everyone in the village being like, come see all the man who exposed all my baggage. You know, like she she was speaking about something far deeper. She was talking about how she felt loved and seen and known by Jesus. In spite of their obvious differences and the power disparity between them, in spite of their differing ethnic, religious, and political affiliations, Jesus shows deep compassion even amid the complexity of her situation. And Jesus calls us to go and do likewise. Jesus saw this woman as the image-bearing woman that she was. He treated her with dignity and grace. He was patient with her. He allowed her to be curious. He allowed for her questions. Compassion, however, is not something that we can just drum up within ourselves. I honestly think that the best way that the Holy Spirit helps us grow in compassion is to sit and listen to people's stories. Validate them, show that you care, offer support where you're able. Unlike other Jews of the day, Jesus chose to reach out rather than to push away. He chose to embrace rather than to shun. He refused to see her as the societal outcast that she thought she was. So I have a question for reflection as we consider the compassion of Jesus. Um, this question comes courtesy of uh, Christian author uh, Leonard Sweet, and he asks this question. Who makes you flinch? Think about that for a second. Who makes you flinch? And by that, I mean, what makes, who makes you uncomfortable? People who believe in... Blank. People who support. Blank. People who are blank. Fill in the blanks with whatever or whoever makes you deeply uncomfortable inside. Get curious with yourself and with God about why that is. And if your answer has something to do with sin, Just a reminder that that didn't stop Jesus from showing compassion. This is also something that we can practice internally among one another here. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are all very different. We have very differing and fundamental perspectives amongst one another. So we can kind of practice this. It's almost like a safe space to sort of be like, hey, let's let's grab a coffee you believe something. I saw that thing you posted on Facebook the other day. I totally disagreed. Let's, let's talk it through. Let's figure out how we can love one another in spite of our differences. And when we do this well, with one another, with our neighbors, we build trust. We really do. We build trust. Lastly, the truth of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus shared the ultimate truth to this woman, that he was the Messiah, the savior of the world. And this is the part that's harder, I think, for some of us, that we're totally good with being compassionate and interdependent. That's great. But what about actually sharing our faith with those around us? In Jesus's terms, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, you have the living water that Jesus spoke about. We do have something to offer. We do have something beautiful and good that we believe in. The question is, how and when do we go about offering it? So with the Samaritan woman, Jesus cultivates mutuality and then a little trust. And then there was this freedom to share about who he was and offer this living water. For Jesus, this happened over the course of a conversation. That can definitely happen. I think it's a little bit more rare, especially in an age of skepticism. I think in general, we're better off building relationships and cultivating, them, cultivating that trust over time. But there does come a time when the truth has a vital role to play in becoming trusted neighbors. If we truly believe that we have received this living water, if it would come up in conversation, it would. We don't need to be pushy. We don't need to be awkward about it. We can just be normal. Like sometimes, sometimes Christians get accused of being really weird and like the bad kind of weird, right? Like, can we just be normal? Like just naturally share the things going on in our world and how it relates to our faith and our walk with the Lord? That'd be really a beautiful thing, I think, if we could be better at that. In my experience, it's pretty normal to share that part of your life if there is trust. If they know that you're not trying to coerce them into becoming a Christian when they have said, no, I'm not going to go there. And also the trust on the other end, to know that they're not going to insult you for your faith or your, your walk with the Lord. Our neighbors are looking for Authenticity. And in fact, are quite deterred by anything that kind of smells like fake or like a bait and switch. And I think we're at the point where as Christians, we just need to be honest with our neighbors about who we are. But when we have this mutuality and this interdependence, when we have this love and compassion with one another, it allows us to do this because we have built trust. So Jesus said, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And we see this come to fruition after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, as Jesus imparts his Holy Spirit to dwell among his believers. And as this happens, worship becomes decentralized. So the story of the Samaritan woman doesn't fully come to fruition until this happens several years later. The joy of the gospel that this Samaritan woman experienced in that moment and for the years to come is available to us today. It is available to our neighbors today to experience the one who has seen all we ever did the one who loves us, the one who draws near to us, the one whom we can trust completely and fully, the one who not only died for us, but was raised to life, conquering sin and death. As we seek to become trusted neighbors, may we be people who put our trust wholly and completely in the person and the finished work of Jesus. Amen.